Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hi everyone, welcome back to our walkthrough of the book of Mosiah. We've just finished the second flashback in the book of Mosiah, which was the story of Alma and the church's journey from the time they fled Noah's army through decades of peace and prosperity, followed by a period of slavery, and finally their exodus to Zarahemla. I've spent a lot of time building up to this moment, and you're probably sick of me telling you that the introduction of the church into Nephite culture will cause everything to shift. But I'm not alone in building it up. Mormon has crafted the book of Mosiah with a focus on three different storylines. We first learned about Benjamin, the making of a new covenant among the Nephite and Mulekite people, and the coronation of Benjamin's son, Mosiah. Mosiah then sends out a search party for a lost tribe of the Nephites, which leads into our second storyline, which focuses on the Zenophites or the people of Limhi. While learning about the Xenophites, we meet Abinadi, whose testimony converts a young priest named Alma, and that leads to our third storyline, the story of another lost tribe, the people of Alma, that broke off from the Xenophites and formed a church, a new kind of community built around belief. Now we have reached the point that Mormon has been building up to, because it's in Mosiah 25 that all three storylines come together. Before we jump into the chapter, I saw something on Twitter from an LDS scholar named Sam Brown that I thought was too fantastic not to share, even though it means backtracking a bit, and it's about the name Mormon. We already spent a little time talking about the name Mormon, but Brown is about to give us a master class in reading the scriptures in inspired and creative ways. This is his tweet, quote, Realized that you could write an essay on Mosiah 18.4 as a key to the meaning of the Book of Mormon, The Noachide etymology of Mormon is fascinating and central. It's the despised borderlands infested with wild beasts from the perspective of the corrupt leader. Okay, that might not make much sense yet. There's a lot of fancy words in there. But let's start with the scripture reference, Mosiah 18.4. This is the scripture reference where we learn why the place where Alma founded the church is called Mormon. It says, And it came to pass that as many as did believe Alma did go forth to a place which was called Mormon, having received its name from the king, being in the borders of the land, having been infested by times or at seasons by wild beasts. So that's the scripture that Brown was referencing. And basically his point is that the etymology, that is the history of the word, that Mormon gives us for why Noah named the place Mormon is a key to the meaning of the Book of Mormon itself. At this point, you might be thinking that this guy is reaching, but he's not done yet. Remember how he sums up the meaning of Mormon, the despised borderlands infested with wild beasts from the perspective of the corrupt leader. Well, keep that in mind as I read his next tweet. This also has some big words. Quote, that's where the faithful gather. Those are the waters of baptism. And that is the toponym that then becomes the eponym for this whole book of scripture and the church it launches. Just fascinating, end quote. A toponym is just the name of a place, and an eponym is the person that something is named after. 
like the Book of Mormon is named after the person Mormon, who is named after the place Mormon. And all of these things combined to launch a church, originally called the Mormon Church, by those looking to attack it. Now do you follow what he's saying? He's saying that just like Noah saw the place of Mormon as being worthy of despising, many people have, do, and will continue to look at the Book of Mormon and the church that it launched the same way. But to the faithful, those who gather at the waters of Mormon, it's a completely different experience. We've read this scripture before, but Mosiah 18.30 emphasizes just how differently the members of the Church of Christ saw the place called Mormon. And it came to pass that all this was done in Mormon, yea, by the waters of Mormon, in the forest that was near the waters of Mormon, yea, the place of Mormon, the waters of Mormon, the forest of Mormon. How beautiful are they to the eyes of them who there came to a knowledge of their Redeemer. Yea, and how blessed are they, for they shall sing his praise. While Noah thinks that this place is just infested with wild beasts, the faithful and Mormon himself see what happened there as worthy of being described in the same language that Isaiah describes the fulfillment of the covenant and the establishment of the kingdom of God. I agree with Sam Brown that it is a fascinating parallel to how many see the modern church versus how many experience the modern church. I truly hope he writes that essay and explores this idea further. I'm not going to spend too much more time on this, but what an example of creatively reading the scriptures. I mentioned before how there is a kind of folk doctrine floating around that Mormon means more good. We don't need to project meanings like that onto the scriptures. If we slow down and read in the kind of careful and creative way that we see Sam Brown reading Mosiah 18.4, we'll find that what the scriptures have to say is far more interesting than what we can project on them. Now to be clear, I don't think that Brown is saying that that's what Mosiah 18.4 was intended to mean. But it's like he's taking the ingredients that the scriptures offer, adding in his own insight and experience, and baking it all together. What comes out is part Noah, part Alma and his people, part Mormon, part Sam Brown, and part everyone who has used the word Mormon positively and negatively. I think that that was worth the tangent. You might not, but it's my podcast, so I get to decide. Alright, back to Mosiah 25. And we're going to get started with verses 1-13. through 13. Mormon begins with giving us some demographic information. He seems to think it's important to remind us that the Nephites in Zarahemla are really a mixture of ethnic groups. There are who he calls the children of Nephi or descendants of Nephi, a kind of blanket term used to describe Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, and Zoramites. And remember that the children of Nephi got to the land of Zarahemla as a remnant led away from the land of Nephi by the first Mosiah and that they were fleeing a larger destruction. So most of the Nephite people who were left in the land of Nephi were likely killed off after Mosiah fled. Nephi himself actually gave us a really good model for thinking about this pattern of the Lord leading his people away to avoid destruction. Way back in 1 Nephi chapter 17, way back in 1 Nephi chapter 17, Nephi is speaking to Laman and Lemuel, who are complaining that Lehi has led them out of Jerusalem and who don't believe that Jerusalem can be destroyed. Nephi says, Behold, the Lord esteemeth all flesh in one, 
He that is righteous is favored of God. Behold, the Lord hath created the earth, that it should be inhabited. And he hath created his children, that they should possess it. And he raiseth up a righteous nation, and destroyeth the nations of the wicked. And he leadeth away the righteous into precious lands, and the wicked he destroyeth, and curseth the land unto them for their sakes. And he loveth those who will have him to be their God. Behold, he loved our fathers, and he covenanted with them, yea, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he remembered the covenant which he made. The Nephites were just as susceptible to destruction and scattering as were the northern ten tribes in the kingdom of Judah. But the Lord led away the righteous because he is faithful to the covenant. Mormon makes the point of saying that the actual descendants of Nephi are the minority of the population in the Nephite kingdom, even with, it seems, the people of Limhi and Alma at an end. The people of Zarahemla, who were descendants of Mulek, or Mulek, as Joseph Smith dictated it, were the majority of the population. Remember that the Mulekites were led out of Jerusalem during the Babylonian destruction, and Mulek was actually the only surviving son of King Zedekiah. This would mean the Mulekites were not only from the tribe of Judah, but they were actually descendants of David. Before the arrival of Mosiah and the Nephite refugees, the Mulekites, due to their lack of records, had drifted away from the cultural roots, losing the language and religion of their ancestors over a number of centuries. So the Nephite people are truly multi-ethnic. Mormon then tells us that there are actually twice as many Lamanites as the entire Nephite kingdom. That doesn't really hold with the stereotype that Nephites have of the Lamanites as wandering savages. In fact, we've already seen that they have their own kingdom with a ruling king named Laman and lower regional kings. It's also probably the case that there were other smaller ethnic groups who were folded into both the Nephite and Lamanite kingdoms. And remember, we aren't talking about a massive area that these kingdoms are occupying. This isn't North and South America. John Sorensen, a Book of Mormon scholar who has done a ton of work on Book of Mormon geography, estimates that it would take about 22 days to walk from the land of Nephi to the land of Zarahemla, if you knew the way. And that's through wilderness, which can often make for slower travel. This is a pretty limited region that we are talking about here. Okay, enough of that. After giving us all of this demographic information, Mormon tells us that Mosiah gathered his people together in two bodies, presumably the Nephites and the Mulekites, though not necessarily. And Mosiah did read and cause to be read the records of Zenith, the first flashback that we read in the book of Mosiah, and he also read the account of Alma and his brethren and all their afflictions, the second flashback in the book of Mosiah. And he also read the account of Ammon and his brethren. Remember that Ammon and his group were the search party that Mosiah sent out to find the lost tribe. Why would Mosiah do this? You can imagine how much time it must have taken to gather the people together to create copies of the records, and then to have them read aloud in a similar way that King Benjamin's speech was read aloud. Why go through that effort? I think that right off the bat, we can safely say that these people cared about sharing a story with one another. Especially in a pluralistic, multilingual, multi-ethnic society, what is it that is going to bind you together and make you one people? At the very least, you have to find a story to share. Our identities are grounded in the stories that we tell about ourselves and about the world. Think about the church. It's not limited to a specific nation, region, race, or ethnicity. So how do you create a globally unified body? It starts with reading the record. One way to describe gaining a testimony of the Book of Mormon is to simply say, 
that it's the point when the Book of Mormon's story becomes your own. We are indeed a people of the book. It's not just important that we have the book, but that we read it again and again and identify with it. There are other reasons, no doubt, that Mosiah read these records. This is the news of the day. People are always curious about the news, especially when there is so much happening in such a short period of time. Mormon describes the people's reaction to this reading. They were struck with wonder and amazement. They knew not what to think. They were filled with exceedingly great joy about the deliverance that these people experienced and filled with sorrow at the loss. This was a roller coaster of emotions for them. I hope that we try and read the scriptures with a similar sort of passion that these people had. I don't know if I'm there yet. I was in the MTC when President Hinckley died, and there was a roller coaster of emotions that we all experienced. People were crying, sharing memories, and everyone there was grateful that he had been the prophet throughout our childhood. I don't know if I feel that type of emotion yet when I read about Abinadi's death, but I want to. There's a really wonderful phrase in verse 10. Mormon tells us that they gave thanks to God when they thought of the immediate goodness of God. Isn't that an incredible phrase? His goodness is immediate, urgent, ready to be received. That's fantastic writing. And it's an amazing way to receive a refugee population, like the people of Limhi or the people of Alma. These people were able to make it to the land of Zarahemla through the immediate goodness of God. And instead of being treated with suspicion or being turned away, they were received as evidence of that immediate goodness. There's another reaction that we get from the people that is somewhat surprising. Verse 11 reads, And again, when they thought upon the Lamanites, who were their brethren of their sinful and polluted state, they were filled with pain and anguish for the welfare of their souls. We'll see that that concern for the welfare of the Lamanites only goes so far for a lot of these people. Pretty soon there will be a group of Nephite princes who actually want to do something for the welfare of Lamanite souls, and their fellow Nephites aren't going to be of much help. The children of the priests of Noah experienced some shame during this reading. Remember that Amulonites were part of the group who fled with Noah and abandoned their families. And basically, these people sever any remaining connections they have to their priestly fathers, just adopting the name of Nephi instead of their family identity. In fact, everyone adopted the name of Nephi, but there were still social divisions based on ethnicity. Mormon makes clear that the kingdom had been conferred upon none but those who were descendants of Nephi. So the minority population has an elevated and ruling status. That's going to prove to be a complication going forward, especially since the majority population is also descendant from kings. Let's move on to verses 14 through 24. Mosiah has finished speaking and reading, and now it's Alma's turn. Pay attention to the relationship of Mosiah and Alma going forward. They represent two different communities, the kingdom and the church, and they're going to need to figure out how to work together, especially since the Nephite kings were also religious authorities. Remember, there's also a bit of an experience and age gap between the two of them. Mosiah has only been king for about three years at this point, and he's still in his early 30s. Alma, on the other hand, has been high priest for about 30 years and is probably about 55. Alma begins preaching repentance and faith on the Lord to the people. Three years earlier, this same people 
made a covenant to be called the children of Christ. So Alma probably didn't get much resistance. He also pays special attention to the people of Limhi, and he makes sure that they knew that it was the Lord that delivered them. We've already seen from the people of Limhi a desire to be baptized, and we get that again here. Mormon tells us, Alma did go forth into the water and did baptize them. Yea, he did baptize them after the manner he did with his brethren in the waters of Mormon. Yea, and as many as he did baptize did belong to the church of God. This is great. The church is growing. But remember, this isn't quite like what we think of as churches today. These guys aren't just going to set aside one day of the week to get together. They're going to bear one another's burdens, mourn with those who mourn, comfort those who stand in need of comfort, and stand as witnesses of the self-sacrificing power of God. That means sharing time, sharing substance. There's no part of their life that isn't dramatically impacted by their baptismal covenant. On top of that, this isn't a brand new experiment in the borderlands anymore. This church had at least 30 years in the land of Helam without any interference to figure out what this thing looks like. This is a well-established community that Limhi and his people, and whoever else got baptized, are joining. It's almost like it's its own little ethnic group, but unlike an ethnicity, you can join this community. And they aren't passive about recruitment either. This is a movement to reshape society, not just to save individual people after they die. And the movement grows quickly in the land of Zarahemla. Mormon tells us that Mosiah granted unto Alma that he might establish churches throughout the land of Zarahemla and gave him power to ordain priests and teachers over every church. Already, we are starting to see the power dynamics play out between Mosiah and Alma, kingdom and church. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. I don't think this relationship is in any way contentious. While we don't get any explicit mention of it, Mosiah may very well have been baptized during this time. But even that possibility is kind of radical for the Nephites. Mosiah is the king, and therefore the religious authority. But he goes to Alma to be baptized, thereby recognizing Alma's religious authority. But then he grants Alma power to ordain priests. Is that instead of the king ordaining priests and teachers like has been done in the past? Kind of sounds like it. What happened to the priests that Mosiah already had since that's how the kingdom was previously organized? You might think that this is tedious to think about these things, but I'm geeking out over here about these dynamics. You can already see how the introduction of the church is causing shifts. Mormon doesn't leave us completely in the dark here. He tells us that Mosiah granted Alma power to ordain priests and teachers because there were so many people that they could not all be governed by one teacher. So they had different churches, and each church has priests and teachers with Alma overseeing them all. And thus, notwithstanding there being many churches, they were all one church, yea, even the church of God. So there were local group dynamics, and larger church dynamics, and then kingdom dynamics. And they all overlap, but not seamlessly. For the time being, however, things are working out pretty well. There were seven churches in the land of Zarahemla, and it came to pass that whosoever were desirous to take upon them the name of Christ or of God, they did join the churches of God, and they were called the people of God. And the Lord did pour out his spirit upon them, and they were blessed and prospered in the land. This will quickly become more complicated, but that's a good thing. It will drive our story going forward. It's going to be important to keep track of all of these elements that Mormon is directing our attention to. In this chapter, he's drawn our attention to ethnicity, politics, geography, and their interaction between the state and the church. And he wants us to understand the history of each variable 
so that we can better understand its impact on the others going forward. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.